So here we are in Matthew chapter 16. And before we do that, sorry, I got to empty my pockets here. There we go. All right, great. And yes, keys, right? We got these keys. I don't know how many keys you have on your keychain. I have, actually have a, this is the average number. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I've got about eight of them here. And I've, t- I've tried. I've tried to say, you know what? I don't need all eight of these keys. I've tried to reduce the number of keys. Honestly, I have tried to reduce them. I'm like, well, I don't need that key. Yeah, well, if I don't want to drive my car, I don't need that key. All right, I need that key. Well, then there's the other car. Yeah, well, if I don't want to drive that car, I don't need that key. Okay, that's fine. Well, then there's the, then there's like the, what is that key? Oh, that's right. That's the key for the, <clears throat> the, the back door. Got to have that key in case you don't have the front door key. Well, there's the front door key. There's the mailbox key. I don't need the mailbox key. But then when you take the mailbox key off your keys, then when you get to the mailbox, you're that person that's like, I forgot the key to the mailbox, right? And then you got to go get the key to the mailbox. Um, oh yeah, gas cap key. Yeah, I always use that. No, it was a great idea. And then I just, it got annoying, but I still have it. So maybe I, don't, I can do without that one. You guys are all like, man, we're going to steal his gas right after this service, right? Um, and then there's always like the key, right? Where you're just like, what is this key? I don't know what this key does, but it's there. I'm sure it's really important because I put it on my keychain at one point. Then there's a little key fob alarm thing. I guess I don't need that, but it gives me a good thing to grab the keys and you know swing at somebody if I need to. So that's kind of a hey, listen, just you know, you may need it. But um, so you know, and then it's like this bulky thing you stick in your pocket, and you you know you. Just, I don't know how many of you guys lose your keys because I lose my keys far more often. And my wife's, <laughs> there's wives and other people, there's spouses pointing at their spouses here. My wife's like, you lose your stuff so often. So she got one of these like things, like the tile. It's like this like uh, little square that goes on your thing and you're supposed to use your phone and it'll tell you wherever your, you know, keys are until you, like the battery dies and then you don't know and then you have one more thing on your keychain that's right there. I'm sure it makes sense for people, but I just didn't make sense for me. And so I'm sure I've lost these keys more than I have fingers on my hand here. So, um, but I have them today. Keys are really important. We live in a world where we need keys. I think about this. There's a world coming, Christian, where doors won't be locked because there's nobody's going to come in and steal. where kids can play. Safety and peace. I mean, think about keys. I mean, keys allow access, right? They allow access to, for certain people, to certain places. Keys are important in the world that we live in here. And Jesus is going to talk about keys. And the keys that he's going to talk about are really important keys because the keys that he's talking about, remember I said there aren't doors in heaven but there's a door to heaven. There's not, there's not doors in heaven, but there's a door, a, lo- a door that requires a key to get to heaven. And Jesus, who is one who has been both in heaven and on earth, is speaking to his disciples about what it takes to get into the door of heaven. And it's a really important message that he's sharing this morning. So this morning's message is entitled Keys to the Kingdom. Let's pray. And we will uh, start in verse number 13 here. Papa, as we come before you, we thank you for your word and we thank you that, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you that he is the bridge between heaven and earth, between a relationship with you. He's the one that bridges that gap. He's the one that 
speaks to us about how we can get to heaven. I pray this morning that as we look at the word, we would take it to heart. We would consider the questions that are being asked. We would ask them of ourselves and that we would ask whether we have the keys to the kingdom of God. Holy Spirit, please speak through me as your word is open, that it would have meaning and understanding and that it would change us in our innermost being. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 16. Let's look at a couple verses here. Verse 13 and 14. And when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Okay. So Jesus is taking uh, his disciples away. He'll do this from time to time. We'll just kind of draw them away and he wants to teach them and he wants to speak with them. You know, um, there's so much of life that we can get lost in the tiny details. Like we get so, so detail oriented that we forget to step back for just a moment and get a bigger picture. And I think what Jesus is doing here at this moment is he's taking the disciples away so that he can go, let's look at a bigger picture, guys. Yes, um, taking care of the poor, feeding the hungry, doing all those things are important. And he has been doing that and he's been showing the disciples the importance of it. But he does take them aside and he's going to ask them a broader question, a bigger picture question. You know, there's throughout our day, tell me if this isn't true or not. So many times things happen that are urgent, but they overshadow those important things in our life. The urgent things, the stuff that's like right now, right now, right now, it's like, oh, and so we're running from right now to right now to right now to right now. So much so that we sometimes forget what's actually important. Because sometimes the thing that needs to be done right now isn't the most important thing that we should be doing right now. Sometimes there's a change of plans. And what Jesus here is he's aiming to focus the disciples' hearts on the biggest issue, which is their heart towards God. So they asked, he asked this question and he asked it of other people first. Who do other people say that I am? And the list, you know, there's a list there. Um, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You, if you were here a month ago, you remember this picture, but just for the sake, here's Caesarea Philippi. I think we have a picture of Caesarea Philippi. This is the region to where Jesus took him. And as he's speaking in this area here, I, I mentioned how these are little niches that you see in the rocks there, these little like grottos, these little cut out places. And what they would put there is their false idols and statues. And so in this area of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is in this, this huge rock, this huge rock face is right here too. He's saying, who do people say that I am? Because there's people right there worshiping, not this picture, this is a church group, but there would be, be people there worshiping these false deities that are in these all these niches that are in this huge rock face. And it's a perfect backdrop for Jesus to say, all right, we see what's going on here, but who do you, who do people say that I am? And the disciples start going down the list. Now this list is not a bad list. I mean, John the baptizer, that's Jesus's cousin. Uh, Elijah, oh, a great prophet who spoke about Jesus coming, Jeremiah, a weeping prophet. These are all, um, I mean, it's, it's an honor to be recognized as one of these guys unless you're somebody greater than one of these guys. See, other people are saying, Jesus, you're like this guy or this guy or this guy or this guy. What's the common thread with the answers that are being given to Jesus in verse 14? Here's a common thread. They're all respectful, 
mean, these are all, you know, people, John the Baptizer, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. That's very respectful. But here's the thing. Every one of them undersell and undermine who Jesus actually is. Oh, well, Jesus is just this really, really great guy. There's people in our world that say Jesus is a really, really great guy. Um, that's underestimating who Jesus actually is. And some people will just stop at that point. Some people say they're Christians and believe that they're Christians because they believe Jesus is a really, really good guy. That's underestimating who Jesus is. That's doing what the other people were saying who Jesus was. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, a really good guy. (laughs) And so when you underestimate a person, what you're doing is you're diminishing who that person actually is. Oh, Jesus is a really good teacher. He taught really good morals. That's underestimating who Jesus is. Jesus is far greater than that. And when you underestimate Jesus, you diminish who he is in your life. So then Jesus, after hearing what everybody else says about him, he asks in verse 15, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? This is the most important question. Who do you say Jesus is? just a really nice guy well then that's not worth entrusting your entire life to just a really nice guy entrusting your eternity to entrusting your family and those that you love he's just a really nice guy he's a really good teacher yeah but that's not enough for me to give everything to who we say jesus is reveals our true relationship with him It troubles me when I come across Christians and it's like, I'm a Christian. Oh, that's great. And then if we get into a conversation, there's a point where it's like, well, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm a good person. What? (laughs) That's not what it's about. And no, you're not a good person because the Bible for which your Savior has inspired and is written of in, in these pages, it actually says something far different about us. I think there's people in our world who believe that they're Christians, but they don't know why they're Christians. And and then here's this next point. If you don't know why you're a Christian, then are you a Christian? Again, I'm not here to say somebody is or isn't a Christian. I'm just wondering, like, how can you be something if you don't even understand what it is? How can you say that you are a follower of Christ if you don't even know what that means? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Just a good person? Just a good teacher? Just a prophet from old? Or am I more than that? And Simon Peter, love it, replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, we did talk about this also um, last month when we looked at this passage here. And this is all about that word Christ. We use it a lot. And there's people who say that they're little Christs, Christians, but we have to know what the word Christ means. And to refresh our memory, here's what we looked at about what the, where the word Christ comes from. We can go all the way back. The Hebrew word that's translated Messiah is and translated into Greek, Christos in Latin, Christus in Old English, Christ which where we get our word Christ from. But it goes back to the meaning, which is the anointed one, the one who is anointed. So if you say you're a Christian, it means you're a follower of the anointed one. 
And then we looked at this last month and we said, well, what does it mean to be anointed? I shared a story of anointing where I didn't understand what anointing meant. But what is anointing and who would be anointed? Here's a list of some people in their culture who would be anointed. Prophets would be anointed. Priests would be anointed. Kings would be anointed. It was a matter of recognizing when they were anointed. It was a matter of recognizing that they were given their position by God. And so when we say Jesus is the Christ, we say Jesus has been given all of his authority by God. Jesus is God. And when we say we're a Christian, we say we follow the one who has been given authority, not by any human being. And, and, you know, the other thing too, Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Jesus is the ultimate priest and Jesus is the ultimate king. And so for Peter, this fisherman to say to the question, who do you say that I am? For Peter to say, you are the Christ. In other words, you are the anointed one. You've been given your authority, not by any human being. You are the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. That's really good for a fisherman. Peter, well done. He did it. The thing I didn't mention a month ago, which I would like to bring up about this, is not the anointed part, but I would like to bring up, and this requires us just to look back a few verses again, is who did, how did Jesus address himself? And then how did Peter address Jesus? And you will see... Something very awesome here. Verse 13, going back to the first verse we looked at. When Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that, he didn't say I am, who do people say that the son of man is? And as we look in the gospels, this is Jesus's favorite way of addressing himself, the son of man. And what it speaks of is his humanity. It's like saying, I'm the son of Adam. I am a human being. So Jesus is saying, listen, I'm a human being like you're a human being. I live in this world like you live in this world. Who do people say that the son of man, the one who understands what your life is like, who do people say that I am? And then if we jump to verse number 16, Peter says, you are the Christ. We got that part. The son of man? No, the son of the living God. Peter could have just said, you're the anointed one, the son of man. But Peter says, no, you're the anointed one, the son of the living God. And with verse 13 and verse 16, there's this awesome tension. Tension is not a bad thing. Tension is good. Tension holds bridges up. (laughs) Tension is a good thing. I have a picture of the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, uh, drawing of the Brooklyn Bridge in my office. And there's a lot of things that impress me about it, like the towers and how they put those concrete foundations in the river. <laughs> you know, how you get concrete to dry and you have to build this barrier so that you can pour concrete in and have it dry before the water comes leaking back in. And, you know, so those, those towers are really important. Golden Gate Bridge, same kind of thing. But what really interests me personally, it's off to the edge of the bridges. It's called the anchorages. Those cables that go up to the towers and come back are under extreme tension. What's holding that? What's keeping those cables from the ends from just snapping and and causing the towers to collapse and all of it to fall down? These anchors on the very ends of the bridge and these cables run in and curve down and are poured in these huge blocks, massive blocks of concrete. And you look at that tension. There's a good tension. If this uh, title of Jesus is two sides of this bridge, it's really important. On one side is Jesus human. Yes, he is human. Fully human? Fully human. 
Is he fully God? Yes, fully God. How is that possible? I'm a human being. I can't, I can't explain that to you. I don't understand it. And yet that is what Jesus is claiming this whole time. He's saying that he is both human and God. And we are not called to put him in one category only or the other category only. If it's that case, then the bridge of who Jesus is in our mind will collapse. There needs to be this healthy tension between the fact that Jesus is human. Because if you believe that Jesus is human, then you believe that he understands what you're going through. That he understands what sorrow is, that he's experienced loss, that, that he, you, that he understands like when he, when Joseph died, as we read now in Matthew 16, we don't see Joseph around. We see his mother Mary around, but we don't see Joseph around. So he hadn't endured the death of a family member. He knows what it's like when you go through that. He experienced that. He knows what it's like to go hungry. He knows what it's like to have your family not believe you. He knows what it's like to be ridiculed. Why? Because he's human. He understands you. Jesus is on the ground level. He's where the rubber hits the road. He understands your life. You can't ever eliminate the fact that Jesus is a human being. But here's the problem. If you go too far that way, and that's all you look at, then you could ignore the part on the other side of the bridge where Jesus is the son of the living God. He is God. He's the king. Then what happens if it's like Jesus is human? Well, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my buddy. Like we're friends. Like we're cool. He's your God. He's your king. Bow before your king. And so there's the other side of the bridge. Jesus said, as he introduced himself, the son of man, Peter, you're the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. I just love it. In these verses here, you see both of those. Now, what happens if you go too far on the other side? Jesus is God and you ignore his humanity. Well, then you forget that he understands you. Then there could be this fear of it's the, he's the king and I, I don't want to ever make him upset because if I do anything, he's going to, oh, hold on. And what we have to strive for is that balance. Both are true. Both are true. He is the son of man and he's the son of God. He's the son of the living God. Peter answered well here. In such a short phrase there, he answered it so, so well. And Jesus even acknowledges that. Verse 17. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Wow. So it wasn't because Peter studied a whole bunch of books. It wasn't because, you know, he's super smart or it was something that God himself revealed to Peter. This insight about who Jesus is was revealed to Peter by God. We need to ask God to reveal Jesus to each one of us. As I was reading this passage and studying this passage, I was thinking, you know what? God, I need to continually ask you to reveal who Jesus is to me. Oh, Jim, you're a pastor. Like, you know who Jesus is. I need to know who Jesus is in my situation today. And then tomorrow, I need to ask God to reveal Jesus in my situation tomorrow. You know, it's this, yes, we ask Jesus to be revealed in our life and we're saved and we are born again and we're a child of God. But then it's not like we stop asking God to reveal who Jesus is. It's not like when we first asked Jesus, we knew everything about him. Oh, I'm good. I know everything about you. No, day by day, we need to, Christians, we need to ask God to reveal who Jesus is to us. It's like a couple that's married. Each day they're learning something new about each other even decades into the relationship into the marriage there can be moments where it's like i didn't know that about you do you realize how many well we you don't realize it i don't either the number of things that we don't know about jesus 
that God the Father wants to reveal to us day by day. We should ask God to reveal Jesus to us day by day. Jesus is the light. He brings light into our life. You may have a dark situation in your life, something that's muddy and confusing and you don't know what to do with it. You need Jesus to enter into that situation. Second uh, Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of God looks like Jesus. The light of God in your dark life, in a dark situation, in a dark thing that you're going through is Jesus. And we pray, God, give us your light in our situation. Verse 18. But I tell you, Jesus said, good job, Peter. Good answer. Very good. God revealed this to you. You didn't just figure this out yourself. And verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Also, we talked about this a month ago. The Roman Catholic Church will look at this passage here and say that Peter is the first pope. And you see God here um, calling Peter to this position, except the language that's being used here in its original language, it says something far different. If you look at it, verse 18, the literal words here are, I tell you, you are a pebble, a little stone. That's what his name Peter means. It's a little stone. But on this rock, totally different word than the word Peter. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then the question was, what was the rock that Jesus was talking about? Because he just called Peter, he called him Peter, a pebble, a tiny rock. But he said, on this rock, I will build my church. Is it that huge Caesarea Philippi massive rock? The backdrop of which Jesus was sharing this with his disciples? Was it that rock? I mean, is Jesus going to build his church in Caesarea Philippi? I don't think that's it. I think what it is, is the rock of the statement that Peter made. And what was the statement that Peter made? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, well done. On that rock, on that statement is my church built. And you think about it, a person can not be a part of the church of Jesus unless they acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he's greater than they are, that they just don't need like a, a self-help kind of a person. They just don't need a life coach. They need a savior. They need somebody to rescue them from their sin. And Jesus is saying, on that rock will I build my church. It's not Peter. The church is not built on Peter throughout the Bible too. And the study is online. You can look at the study from, uh, from last month. Peter's not the foundation of the church. Jesus is the foundation of the church. And there's Bible verse after Bible verse that shows that. So it, this passage can't possibly mean that Peter is the foundation on which the church is built. Now, interesting thing here. Jesus asked Peter, look at how this conversation went. Jesus asked Peter, who do people say that I am? And then Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? Peter answers Jesus. And then here's what Jesus does. Jesus now tells Peter who he is. Jesus asked Peter, who am I? Peter answered. And based on that answer, oh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus goes, well said, Peter. Now let me tell you who you really are. When we acknowledge who Jesus really is, that's when God speaks into our heart and tells us who we were really created to be. You will not find your purpose in life and who God called you to be unless you acknowledge who Jesus is. And when we acknowledge who Jesus is, then all of a sudden, I'm going to do something great here. I'm going to do something great through you. 
Verse 18 is also a very interesting verse here because it's the first time we see in the scriptures where the word church is used. And it's right there in verse 18. I will build my church. And here's the cool thing. Like, if you want to be on the team that's not going to lose, be a part of the church of Jesus. Because Jesus says right there, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh, there's going to be moments where the church, I mean, you think about that, that title church. It's a very maligned word in our society. Oh, you go to church? Church. Horrible things happen at church. I knew somebody that went to church and they were a hypocrite. And so a lot of things get rolled up into that word church. But when we look at church, the way that Jesus has intended it, Jesus is saying that my church, the gates of hell, everything that Satan can try to throw at it, all that the world will throw at it will never win. If you want to be on the winning team, be a part of my church. Wow. Talk about being able to pick the winner ahead of time. But it requires us to acknowledge that we have a desperate need for Jesus, that we cannot do it by ourselves. And now verse 19, this is actually the first new verse we're looking at. We're only looking at verse 19 and 20 today, but all of those things I think were important because here's what Jesus says to Peter now. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does he mean by this? Because he's specifically now talking to Peter. This is a conversation here with Peter. He talked about how the church is going to be built on that statement of Jesus being the Christ. But then he tells Peter very personally here, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What does this mean? What kind of set of keys is Jesus given Peter? These sound like an amazingly powerful set of keys. And what these keys are, I don't have a screen for this, but if you're taking notes, you can write these down. These are the keys that unlock access to God's kingdom to people who didn't think that they had access to God's kingdom. Before I share that, that let me share about um, this lock that I saw. And I'm sure this lock has a, a name to it. I'm not sure what it is, but I saw it in Brazil. It's very interesting. We went to this hotel and there's a like a deadbolt lock. And it had it didn't have just the lock and unlock position. It had three positions. And I thought it was very interesting. You get to the door and the door is locked. So the deadbolt is like, you know, if the frame's here, the deadbolt's like just, it's in there. So you try to, you know, open the door and it's not opening. If you turn the key in the unlocked direction, the bolt comes out and the door can open. Pretty standard. But let's go back to the door being in that position where it's locked, right? If you go to lock the door, Jim, it's already locked. If you go to lock the door, the bolt goes in further. I'm like, wow, that's like, so at night, I'm like, yeah, we do the double lock thing. We get the bolt all the way in there. Like we, you know, right? I'm like, I can't figure out why you would want it in the, in the, in not the halfway, but like, yeah, the halfway, you know, in position. I'm like, it works, but why wouldn't you just put the deadbolt in all the way? And I couldn't get that picture out of my head when I was thinking about the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Because the keys to the kingdom of heaven, it's like for each person, when the gospel, which is what this is, what Jesus is giving to Peter is the gospel. It's the thing, it's the message that can save a person forever. When you come up to a person's heart, there it's like that deadbolt is in that half-locked position. And the key, that key, the key works in everybody's heart. The question is, and this is the question, when the gospel is spoken to a person, the question is always this, which way is the key going to turn? It's not an issue that the key doesn't work. Oh no, the key works. The key works in the lock of every single human being. This is why it's important that we share the gospel. 
That key enters into a person's heart. But now the question is, based on their heart, it's what determines which way the key will turn. Will the key turn into a position where their heart unlocks and the doors open so that Jesus Christ can enter into their life so that they might enter into a relationship with him and enter into heaven forever? Or will that exact same key, this is the important thing, it's not a different key. Will that exact same key, when inserted into the person's heart that's in that locked position, will it spin the other way because they hear about how, because the gospel is offensive to some people. Oh, what, I'm not a good person? Oh, what, what, I need a savior? I don't need a savior. I'm much better than Hitler. I don't need that. I'm good enough. You know what that same gospel does? The same message, what it does for a person whose heart's hard is it spins the key in the other direction. That key goes in the other direction and it bolts even further. We have to share the gospel, you guys. Jesus is giving his disciples a bigger picture. Yes, feeding people, taking care of the physical needs of others is an important thing. But don't ever do those things and not share the gospel. Otherwise, you'll have people that are full and headed to hell. You'll have people that are clothed and headed to a place in separation with God forever. So which one should I do? One or the other? Do both. But don't forget the gospel. And as that key gets inserted into a person's heart, then for us, it's like, well, I don't know which way is the key going to turn. That's not for you. That, that is not your responsibility. Your responsibility is that the gospel is shared, that people around you understand that God loves them so much that he sent his son to die for them because they are not good enough to save themselves. God desires to spend eternity with every single person, but he'll never force a person to spend eternity with him. They have to choose. For some people, the gospel is life. It's like a cup of cold water in the desert. And that lock, that bolt opens and the door opens and they receive the love of Christ. And for others, they are outright offended by the exact same message. It happened in Jesus's time and it happens in 2019. But it's our responsibility to share the gospel. So these keys to the kingdom, what was so special about Peter? Like, was he the first person to ever share the gospel with people and unlock the door? Well, with certain groups of people, you know what? He was. In Acts chapter two, these are, this is not going to be on the screen. This is just, just for you to make a note of. In Acts chapter two, on the day of Pentecost, who got to share a message and preach? Peter did. And on the day of Pentecost, Jews who had been coming to Jerusalem from all over the world heard the gospel being spoken in their own language, heard it, and many came to Christ. Thousands came to Christ on that day in Acts chapter 2. Who was the person that had the privilege of using the key on that day? Peter. Let's fast forward to Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans were shared the gospel. The truth. And remember, Samaritans, who are they? They are Jews who intermarried with Gentiles, non-Jews. So the Jews would look at them as half-breeds, spiritually unclean. But you know who God, we know what God thinks about the Samaritans? He loves them. And so God sent two of his disciples to go and share the truth with the Samaritans. One of those two was Peter. That was Acts chapter 8. 
So now the Jews in Acts chapter 2 hear the gospel. The Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 hear the gospel. And then in Acts chapter 10, the full-blown Gentiles, like not Jewish at all. It was a Roman centurion. And a person had the privilege of going to a Roman centurion's house, which would have made a Jew unclean. But God spoke to this Jewish person and said, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Who was that person that had the privilege of sharing with these Gentiles? Peter. Acts chapter 2, the Jews. Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans. Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles. Jesus said, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So is Peter the only one that gets the keys to the kingdom of heaven? No, 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 no. If you know the gospel, you also have the keys. We're called to share the key. We're called to share it with others. But what a privilege Peter had to be the one that kind of spearheaded this, but he's not the only one and he's not the foundation on which the church is built. But there is something that happened. Remember that same key? I said that it could go the wrong way because of a person's heart. That key of the gospel can turn the wrong way and cause the deadbolt to lock even further. There was a man named Simon, not Peter. This guy was into um, sorcery, if you will. And he saw what the gospel was doing and how it was changing people's lives and how even people were getting healed. And he wanted to bottle that up, package it and sell it so that he could get rich. Man, people share the good news in the gospel of Jesus and there are people that want to make a profit off of it. Happened then, happens today. Acts chapter 8, verse 22 and 23. Here's an example of the key spinning the wrong way. Acts 8, verse 22. Speaking to Simon, the sorcerer, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity of sin. Man, you're a prisoner of sin. I gave you the key to the kingdom of God and you turned it the opposite way and it's caused the deadbolt to go further. Jesus even said this, verse uh, John chapter three, verse 18. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. You've given your life to Christ. You've entrusted your eternity to him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Church, we have to share the gospel. We have to do it. I love this, that, you know, the gospel is going to be shared at the care home this afternoon. And there are folks that in what some would say is at the late stage of their life, right? Ah, well, they've probably heard the gospel. Who knows how many hundreds of times in their life, right? What's the point of sharing it one more time? They're basically like, they're not even there. Oh, never underestimate the key to God's kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pastor Joe and others have witnessed a person in their 80s, 90s, hearing the gospel. And you know what? God opens up their heart. The key spins in the right direction. The deadbolt opens. And right at the edge of them stepping off into eternity, they are now going to step off into eternity with Christ. Never underestimate the gospel of Jesus and the power. I know that we can go, ah, a person's gone so long. They've been my family member. They've been against Christ. I don't think they'll ever come around. Don't you ever stop using the key of the gospel of Jesus. Which way it turns, that's not up to you. Our responsibility is to offer the key. That is our responsibility. 
Now, um, verse number 20, this is a very interesting verse for us to close off on today. Then he, this is Jesus, strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, the anointed one. Wait, what? It's kind of an odd moment here where you just go, wait, Jesus, you are the anointed one, but you don't want us to tell anybody about it. Here's the thing. This was not the right moment for the disciples to tell everybody about Jesus being the anointed one. Also realizing that that realization to Peter didn't come by somebody telling him. It was revealed to Peter by God himself. Jesus here is telling his disciples, don't tell anybody that I'm, the, that I'm the anointed one. But know this, this is a temporary command because by the time we reach the end of Matthew's gospel, you know what Jesus is going to instruct them, commission them to do? Go tell everybody everywhere that I am the Christ. Tell everybody. It's just that for this season right here, there was a different purpose that was going on. And Jesus was going, I'm working something in you, my disciples. For right now, don't share that but there'll come a time where you'll tell everybody. And so where do we go tell everybody? Well, Jesus wants us to be his hands and feet into this world. Start in Humboldt County, start in your backyard, care home, two o'clock this afternoon. We're gonna share the love of Jesus Christ. Be a part of that. You get an opportunity to do that. Do it with your neighbors, do it with the friends. Those, some of you have lived in Humboldt County for a long time. You've grown up with people and you see them and you see that they are living a life apart from Christ. And if nothing changes, they'll spend an eternity apart from Christ. Eternity. What we're called to do is to share the gospel with them. What they do with it is what they do with it. But we have a responsibility, Christian, to, to share the gospel. And sometimes we do it right in our backyard. Sometimes we extend it out a little further. Our country needs missionaries sent to it. I, con- I constantly pray that God would send missionaries to the United States. No, no, we're the United States. We send missionaries other places careful otherwise that'll be our pride rising up there like we're good enough and we don't need people to come tell us and remind us about jesus oh our country definitely needs to be reminded about the king of kings it has forgotten jesus come and send missionaries to the united states but you know sometimes for us god gives us the privilege to go outside yeah come wednesday night we'll talk about brazil opportunity to serve the lord in a different country we'll share about some of the things that the lord did over the last two or three weeks while we were there But know this, as long as you have breath in you, Christian, you are called to be faithful to God and not to be scared and not to be shaken by this world. I leave you with this verse and ask the worship team to come on up and we're going to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross with communion. First Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Use those keys knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. If you're here this morning, I want to encourage you, do not underestimate Jesus. If you're a Christian, ask God to reveal Jesus in your situation. And if you're not a Christian, don't just call Jesus a good man or a good teacher. You're underestimating him. He's far greater than that. He's your savior. Acknowledge Jesus for who he is. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment here. Before we receive communion, communion is just remembering who Jesus is, that he is God and that he is man, that he died on the cross for our sins. It means something great to the believer and the Christian. It doesn't mean anything to somebody that's not a Christian. It's just juice and a cracker. I want to give you an opportunity if you're not a Christian 
if you're listening on the radio or the internet and you've been underestimating Jesus as just a good man, a good teacher, somebody with good morals, but you've never acknowledged him as the Christ, the son of the living God, God himself, the king of kings. You have an opportunity to do that today, to be in a right relationship with him. And when you acknowledge who Jesus is correctly, then he's going to tell you who he created you to be. Would you like to accept Jesus Christ into your heart this morning? If you do, you can pray a prayer something like this, right to God, not to me, not to some priest. You can go right to Jesus. Pray something like this. Jesus, I've been underestimating you in my life. I've been looking at you as someone far below who you really are. You are God. You are the King of Kings. You're the one that I should bow to, give my whole life to, trust my eternity with. You're the one that can save me of all of my sins. Jesus, I need to be rescued from my sins. I'm drowning in my sinful nature. Jesus, rescue me. Be my God and my King and my Savior. Forgive me of all of my sins. Help me to walk in the right path to make you proud, to be an example of you to other people right around me who are drowning in their sin. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of the living God, that you died on a cross for me and for what I did against you. I believe it. I accept you. I turn the key in the right direction and I open the door of my heart and I invite you, Jesus, to come in. I desire to spend eternity with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We have our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Just another moment here. If you accepted Christ and you're here this morning, I won't embarrass you. But if you just raise your hand just so that I can acknowledge, is there anyone here this morning that prayed that prayer? Father, we thank you that your word as it goes out doesn't go out empty. We pray for those on the radio and the internet and those that will hear this in the future. God, thank you that your key works in every person's heart. We pray that it would turn in the right direction. And now, Father, we want to remember what your son did for us on the cross. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, as you receive the communion elements, would you hold them? And then we'll take them together and we'll remember what Jesus did for us. Jesus, you are mercy. Jesus, you are justice. Jesus, you are worthy. That is what you are. You died alone to save me. You rose so you could raise me. You did this all to make me. Chosen child of
hold this piece of bread in our hands, it symbolizes the body of Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God, willingly gave himself for us because that's what it required for all that we had done against God to be paid for. A sacrifice had to be made. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. Jesus gave his perfect sinful, sinless self for our sinful nature. Papa, we thank you so much that you were willing to give us your son. Papa, how much you loved each one of us. You knew that we couldn't make things right on our own. We couldn't fix it ourselves. It would require great sacrifice. So you gave us your son. Jesus, thank you for willingly being our sacrifice because of your great love for us. We never have to question whether you love us. We just have to look at what you did on the cross for us. So we remember you now. And we want to say we're thankful for all you've done. Thank you, Jesus. Shall we take together? And for this grape juice here that represents the blood of Jesus, we would be walking in shame, overcome by all the things that we've done in our life. And our memory would remind us, and sometimes it does, 
But that's why we take communion. Because this grape juice reminds us of the blood of Jesus that washed our sins. So every time you think about your past and all that you've done, remember what Jesus did for you. And that his blood is effective. How effective is it? To wash us white as snow. God does not bring our past stuff against us. God does not ask us to pay for the things of our past. The eternal price of that has been fully paid for. Papa, we thank you so much that you allowed your son to spill his blood for us. A perfect lamb spilling his perfect blood for absolutely imperfect and undeserving people. Thank you for your great kindness for us. And thank you that without the shame of our sin, we have a freedom and a boldness to share the love of Christ with others. We can share the freedom that we've experienced in Christ through the blood of Jesus with other people. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd give us the boldness to share that, the power of the blood of Jesus. Thank you that we are blood-washed Christians. Our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Shall we take and drink together? Amen.